This episode of Indie Matters is brought to you by the Nevada Mining Association. Welcome to the Indie Matters podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Riley Snyder, filling in for Nevada Independent Editor John Ralston. Welcome to our weekly podcast. This week, reporter Michelle Rendells and I speak with Governor Brian Sandoval's former chief of staff, Mike Wilden, who just wrapped up a 45-year career in state government on Friday. All right, Mike Wilden, thank you so much for coming on to the Indie Matters podcast. Uh, like we were saying yesterday, it's sort of our radio show for millennials, but we appreciate you coming into our uh, Carson City home. Um, I guess a, a good place to start, uh, we were talking about this, was that Friday was your last day uh, with the state of Nevada as an employee. Can you give us an idea of how uh, long you've worked for the state and all the various roles that you've had just for people who might not be aware of your uh, background and experience with the state? So Friday ended a 45-year career. Uh, I started working for the state uh, August 30th, uh, 1973. So went 45 years. I purposely retired on or ended my state service. I don't like the word retired. <laughs> I ended my state services on January 4th at 5.45 and 45 seconds. That way I had 45 years, four months, five days, 45 minutes, and 45 seconds. 45, 45, 45, 45. <laughs> yeah, and for those who don't know, uh, Mike Wilden's reputation precedes him, but uh, he was ending his uh, state service so far as, as Governor Sandoval's chief of staff. Um, and prior to that, you were the uh, director of the Health and Human Services Department. Um, so basically knows everything you could ever want to know about Nevada Medicaid and, and HHS things and probably pretty much everything else since you've been the chief of staff. Do you want to tell us a little bit, you, you've seen uh, so many different governors in your, your state service. Um, can you take us back to what it was like working for for some of these uh, folks that preceded Governor Sandoval? Well, the governors I had the most interaction with um, would probably be starting with Bob Miller, uh, Governor Miller. You know, he was the governor when we were doing welfare reform in the in the late 80s, so we spent quite a bit of time, uh, I did anyway, at HHS at that point in time. I was uh, at the welfare division and we were doing some welfare reform initiatives back when um, the old aid-dependent children program became the TANF program and it was block-granted the states and we were trying to figure out how we we're gonna do all of that. So spent a lot of time with uh, Governor Miller and his staff and then obviously a lot of time with uh, Kenny Gwynn. Uh, Kenny Gwynn, uh, Governor Gwynn appointed me both uh, the welfare administrator uh, for about a year, I think I was a little over a year the welfare administrator, then he promoted me again I guess uh, to the Director of Health and Human Services. So again, a lot of initiatives with uh, Governor Gwynn. We can talk more about that detail. Uh, then after that was reappointed by uh, uh, Governor Gibbons. Um, and then Governor Sandoval appointed me again as Health and Human Services Director uh, and as his Chief of Staff. So I've been Health and Human Services Director under three governors uh, and Welfare Manager, Welfare Administrator, whatever you want to call it, under a couple of governors. Uh, so, yeah, I had a long career, seen a lot of things, uh, grew up in the system in health and human services until I uh, was asked to be the chief of staff by uh, Governor Sandoval. Uh, my first 40 plus years were all in health and human services from working in a girls correctional facility as what I like to say lawnmower boy uh, to a case manager in Westside Las Vegas, did probably several hundred home visits uh, in Westside Las Vegas. The African-American community is where I cut my teeth in casework. Uh, worked the Naked City and worked Northtown. Uh, that was my beat, if you will. Uh, so I grew up doing that in Las Vegas in the 70s. Uh, then worked a lot establishing our first child support enforcement program, food stamp program. And then I did a lot of information technology work. Brought up what we call our nomads system, which is the welfare system that everybody thought we'd never get up, but it's been up now and running for 18 years without major modification. Worked in the child welfare system, worked in finance of uh, welfare. That's really 
uh, where I spent a lot of time financing programs, financing, figuring out how to finance Medicaid and finance welfare systems and uh, that type of stuff. So I've had a great career, uh, HHS, and then again, most recently, Chief of Staff. That is fascinating. I didn't realize you had spent so much time in the welfare division. You know, we've written a little bit about TANF and where it's at right now. I mean, we're, we're talking about a block grant, right? So it's right. capped and, and it kind of has diminishing number of people that can fit on the, the caseload these days, right? Right. Um, can you kind of explain what, what you've seen in terms of the evolution of welfare um, in Nevada? Has, has it dropped since we saw welfare reform? Well, when I first started back in the 70s in welfare, uh, it was a, a, what I would call a very restrictive program. Only, uh, if it will, probably 90 Eight percent of the cases were single moms uh, with children or or pregnant women, and so we called it the ADC program, aid to dependent children, not to not aid to families with dependent children. We wouldn't allow back then two parent households to receive public assistance if the father was in the home. Uh, it was not allowed. Uh, we've obviously seen a huge uh, change over time. That um, and, and I think part of that's just today's society, more and more kids are being cared for, not by their parents, uh, aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, uh, different caretakers. So the system has evolved uh, from just a mom and two kids is what we used to call the average case to a more, if you will, uh, extended family situation where the children are being cared for by uh, by others. Obviously in the late 80s it was shifted from the aid to dependent children program to the temporary assistance for needy families. It's time limited uh, now. I mean there's uh, time limits on being on TANF. I think it's a five-year time limit still. Uh, and in Nevada we have what we call two on and off periods there. You can come on for a couple of years, you have to sit out for a year, you can come on for a couple of years, then you have to sit out for a year, then you come on for your final year. So it takes you seven years to to get your uh, the help that you're entitled to or eligible to get. Interesting to me is that, you know, in the old days it didn't have the employment focus that it does now, and now rightfully so. It has a heavy employment uh, and other social services focus. And so a lot of the block grant now doesn't just go to granting aid to families. And when I mean granting aid, you know, to pay for their rent and, and utilities and things like that. But it's, it's going to employment and training programs, uh, drug and alcohol programs, uh, what I call low-level behavioral health, mental health programs, transportation, uh, things like that. It's, it, it better recognizes, if you will, the needs of families than just granting a small amount of aid to help pay your rent and utilities. How successful have we been in terms of being able, of course the goal of the program is to get people you know, off uh, public assistance and into a job and become self-supporting. How um, successful have we been at building kind of an ecosystem and, and ushering people, you know, into employment? Well, well quite frankly, I, I would say I think it's a mixed bag if you measure how successful we have been. Obviously, a lot of work has gone into that, but the federal government measures it by do you or don't you uh, meet what we call uh, there's certain employment rates. You have to have a certain percentage of your cases actively participating in employment or in a training program and things like that. Uh, they're pretty high standards. I don't remember exactly what they are, but you have to have nearly half of your cases participating. So we have not met that marker uh, in the last several years. In fact, I would probably say six or eight years. And so a lot of work has to continue to go into meeting your employment rates. Uh, it's called a work participation rate in the federal jargon. And Nevada has not been meeting that. Uh, a lot more needs to be done, but it's a very difficult population when you look at the employment spectrum. These are typically, again, moms that have a kid or two and or are pregnant, um, haven't had a lot of education, may not even have a high school diploma, typically have transportation barriers. Um, you know, they've got a lot of issues going on. Some, many have domestic violence issues. Um, and so you have to build with the basic building blocks, you know, and a lot of times it's, it's exactly that. It's, you know, it's starting about, you got to get up in the morning, you got to get ready, your kids got to get out to school, they're catching buses, you're going to have to catch a bus, you're going to have to take a bus to work, you're, or to your training program. There's a lot of 
if you will, challenges uh, that you and I don't necessarily think about. We get up, roll out of bed, get dressed, jump in our car, and go to work. Um, uh, a lot of the low-income families have a lot more challenges than you or I would. And you mentioned that we've had a hard time meeting these pretty ambitious benchmarks for how, how much of the welfare population is employed. Um, and so there's been a fine associated right that, with that, correct? Yeah, there are penalties, uh, work participation rate penalties. And, and what the states do is you work on a, a negotiation plan with the federal government. Uh, you uh, don't necessarily have to pay the fines as long as you're continuing to improve and make progress. And so that's what we work on is how you, uh, what, what's the next steps towards progress. And so that's what's Nevada's uh, position has been, if you will. Uh, we usually don't meet the work participation rate. Then we negotiate a corrective action plan. We implement the corrective action plan, and we work through that process. You know, I think, uh, my humble opinion, a lot of states, if you will, played some games with uh, the block grant in years past. I remember when I was looking at how to implement the block grant. Um, a lot of states just changed some rules within their state and how they help families wasn't wasn't called aid, you know, and so they stopped what, what I call the basic aid process. And so there wasn't a way for families to get basic aid. And so um, I think Nevada's tried to do the right thing, but again, I think it's a difficult employment uh, world. Uh, you know, when we're at full employment, like or what I would call full employment now, when you're down four and a half, five percent uh, unemployment rate, that's near full employment. We don't get better than that. You know, four percent is probably perfect. Um, um, so, you know, you have a difficult time uh, having people with more barriers uh, to move into jobs than people that have less barriers. In your role uh, with DHHS, I'm just curious because. Um, in that department, you're managing a lot of programs that are funded by funds from the federal government, whether it's SNAP, the food stamp program, or TANF, uh, which we generally think of as welfare, um, but you could get into the definition of welfare and what it is on the federal level. But has there been any noticeable um, difference in all the administrations you've worked under in terms of presidential administrations and how that relationship between state health and managing those programs and the federal funds, uh, has that relationship changed based on who's been in the Oval Office? Well, it's constantly changing. You know, I mean, again, uh, you go back to the 80s, a lot of people were pushing block grants at, at, at that point in time. You know, the Medicaid program has been pushed for block grants on and off. You know, the repeal and replace work that was over the last couple of years, there was efforts there to issue or push block grants to the state. So it, it's really, is it the best model, an open-ended model, or is the best uh, model a, a block grant model? And then again, different administrations, you know, we've had pushes uh, to do outreach programs to help kids get on health care. We've had administrations that pushed to uh, do outreach for SNAP, what used to be food stamps or SNAP. Um, and we, we did a lot of effort uh, uh, pre the Trump administration on the Affordable Care Act and trying to get people enrolled uh, uh, on you know uh, healthcare programs, whether it's Medicaid, uh, Nevada Checkup, or the Silver State Health Insurance Exchange, I think lately that's been a huge challenge for, particularly for uh, Nevada, because we were an opt-in state. Uh, we wanted to expand Medicaid. We did expand Medicaid. Uh, we've been an aggressive in enrolling kids in the Nevada Checkup uh, or what we call SCHIP program. Uh, we've been doing, I think, a tremendous job at the Silver State Health Insurance Exchange, uh, trying to enroll people there. But it becomes very difficult when your federal partners uh, may or may not believe it the same way the state does. You know, uh, several of the subsidy programs, you know, have been restricted, uh, particularly with the Silver State Health Insurance Exchange. And when you're in a constant, uh, if you will, battle, that's what I think it is, a battle. You know, when you're uh, going through repeal and replace and numbers of versions of repeal and replace and constantly evaluating whether they will help or harm your state. In the Sandoval administration, in all that real repeal and replace, we never saw a model, if you will, a proposal that we thought was better than what Nevada had. There wasn't one. And obviously, Governor Sandoval was not supportive of uh, Graham Cassidy. Uh, or the Graham Cassidy Heller Johnson, I think was the, was the revised version. We were not supportive. It did not pencil out math-wise 
it would hurt Nevada. And when I say hurt, people may or may not have lost health care coverage, but the state would have had to put in significantly more dollars uh, between the state federal match. Uh, and so we didn't support it. Uh, for people who don't remember, the governor, Brian Sandoval, and Senator Dean Heller had a press conference uh, two summers ago in 2017 where they both announced they would oppose uh, Senate Republicans' versions uh, of bills to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Mike, can you tell us um, sort of what sort of discussions were happening in the governor's office and with Senator Heller's office in 2017 that led them to make that very public um, announcement and hold that press conference and that's when they would oppose um, those efforts? Uh, sure. I mean, we were constantly evaluating. I mean, I don't have them now, but if back in the office, you know, there were binders full of uh, books where we were running scenarios on, you know, uh, what the funding model would be, who would be eligible, what the federal participation rate would be, would it be a block grant or not a block grant, uh, what services would be covered, what essential benefits, those types of things. So we were under constant evaluation with those things and in, in, in frequent communication with uh, Senator Heller's staff and, and other staff. You know, at the time, just before that press conference in Las Vegas, it was pretty clear at that point in time that the Graham-Cassidy version was the version I believe that we were looking at at that time. And that would not have been good for Nevada. And Senator Heller flew out from D.C. and we flew down to Las Vegas and had the press conference and said that that would not be good for Nevada. And then multiple other versions of, you know, uh, repeal and replace came out. And um, and again, quite frankly, uh, the Sandoval administration never saw one that we felt uh, was good for Nevada. We obviously were pretty pushy to keep what we had. Um, we We believed we were on the right path. We still believe. If Governor Sandoval was sitting here with me, still believe we're on the right path with uh, low-income families. And we're talking about people below 200% of poverty here. We're not talking about the margins. We're talking about very low-income families. And uh, Governor Sandoval was committed. His administration was committed to getting those families health care choices. And again, the three choices are Medicaid for the very low income, uh, Nevada checkup for the kids, 200% uh, of poverty or below, and the Silver State Health Insurance Exchange with or without subsidies. Uh, and we believe we were successful. You know, we went from 320,000 people on Medicaid pre-Affordable Care Act and maybe 20,000, I don't remember the exact number, kids on Nevada checkup and nobody in the exchange, exchange didn't exist, to we're about 660,000 low-income Nevadans now on uh, Medicaid, another 28,000 kids on checkup, and uh, I've seen the final numbers for this year's enrollment, but I'm going to say 80,000 to 85,000 um, um, Silver State Health Insurance Exchange enrollees. So that's a lot of Nevadans in health care. Um, Pre-Affordable Care Act, uh, if you ran Nevada's numbers, we were 22-23% uninsured which was pathetic. We were racing to the bottom or at the bottom. It was a, depending on what poll you or study you read, it was other, us or Texas were last place all the time. And we, we believe that was not where we wanted to be. Uh, jobs, education, healthcare are the focus. And uh, so we went to work trying to figure that out. Um, and now I don't know the latest polls. I've seen them as low as 8% uninsured. I've seen them as high as 11% uninsured. And so that's getting probably pretty close to maybe the best Nevada can do. And the reason I say that is uh, because Nevada has a higher than many states undocumented percentage of our population. I believe that percentage runs around 7%. And so they're not eligible for many of the health care programs um, and the undocumented. And so that difference between a 7% undocumented rate and 9 to 11% uninsured rate, you only have a maybe a 3% margin there that you could find that many more people uh, not having health care coverage. So I think Nevada's made tremendous progress. You bring up the undocumented population, and, and they're in a difficult position in terms of getting coverage. <clears throat> California has 
tried to address this, right, by by bringing people onto their public systems or at least considering doing so. Um, has Nevada ever entertained that idea or, or have you guys been discussing any ways to get at uh, treatment for that population aside from just emergency room care? Yeah, we, we've done uh, what comes to mind like three things uh, in our administration. I mean, it, it's a difficult uh, challenge, you know, I mean, hospitals, ERs, emergency rooms can't turn people away. There's a law called EMTALA, the Emergency uh, Labor and Treatment Act, or I might have the acronym a little backwards there, but uh, you can't turn people away. If you, you show up sick to a hospital ER, you have to be treated and you have to be safely discharged uh, from a ER slash hospital. So, you know, somebody's going to pay the cost of that. And so you try to find ways to uh, lower that cost to that system, if you will. So a couple of things that the Sandoval administration and the Gwynn administration worked on was, uh, so Medicaid dollars are available for emergency treatment to non-citizens. You know, you don't get the routine uh, primary care, but you get emergency treatment. And so we look to, if you will, make sure that emergency treatment was billed to Medicaid and not to the general taxpayer base or to the ratepayer base. Um, so we worked on that. A lot of that work is defining what's emergent care. And so, for example, we spent a lot of time looking at diabetes. A uh, Hispanic population has a high incidence of diabetes, I believe higher than the uh, uh, Caucasian white population. And so we worked to ensure that our rules uh, said that diabetes was urgent or emergent care and not ongoing chronic care. If you don't get your insulin or your dialysis or your whatever, you will decompensate. You will have a problem shortly and you will be in the hospital and ER. So we worked along those lines. Um, so those are some of the policy decisions. And then if you remember last session, Senator uh, Kinsella had Senate Bill 325, which uh, addressed children uh, not having uh, uh, a delay getting into Medicaid. Uh, children that had come to America and were in their five-year wait period. Um, and so we supported that. Governor Sandoval signed that bill and surprised uh, Senator Kinsella at a bill signing in Las Vegas when we were signing other bills. So there has been work to try to, if you will, uh, ease that burden and to use federal dollars where we could to provide care to uh, that, that, that population. One of the uh, criticisms, I guess, that some critics of the Affordable Care Act have said for states that ex decided to expand like Nevada, the federal reimbursement rate uh, declines over time. And I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I think it goes down from like 95 to 93 or 90% over time. Obviously, the state budget is doing pretty good compared to 2010 or um, in past years, so we're able to afford that. But what is the challenge for the new governor, Steve Sisolak, and his team and uh, future governors in terms of having this larger population um, on Medicare uh, and the increased need for state dollars to help fund that as the federal reimbursement rate decreases. So you're right, Riley, let me run through the, the three groups. So basic Medicaid uh, has what we call a basic FMAP. FMAP stands for the federal matching assistance percentage. What percent does the federal government pay for? So the basic FMAP is around 65%. It hasn't changed much in a few years. It floats a half a percentage or so around 65%. There's a very complex calculation that we go through every year. It's a three-year rolling average of all the states. That really hasn't changed, so that's a solid FMAP. Uh, so that's not really a driver of what uh, the state has to put in to support the Medicaid program. The driver there would be if there's higher enrollment or higher utilization of services, but the FMAP is fairly stable. Then the other uh, one uh, that the Affordable Care Act dealt with is the FMAP uh, matching percentage for kids. And so we got a five-year boost uh, for kids, uh, the Nevada checkup and or what we call S-CHIP kids. And so it went, it used to be around 75%. It went up to 98%. We got a 23% percentage boost. And so nearly all of the kids' costs were paid for through federal dollars. 
So 98% from 75%. Now that's returning back to 75%, but that's a, still a, a, a very compelling FMAP and uh, a, a very good deal for the state. And I'll get to the numbers in the end. The third FMAP was what we call the new eligible population or what they call the childless adult population. And so we brought on a couple hundred thousand childless adults, many of them in the behavioral health arena. Uh, and that's what our calculations were all about, was getting behavioral health recipients covered in that high FMAP. So for the first three years of the Affordable Care Act, we got 100% federal dollars for that new eligible population with a heavy behavioral health emphasis. And now it's slid, sliding down or slid down uh, to a bottom of 90% federal dollars. So it's a great deal for Nevada. 65% of our basic group, 75 to 98% of kids are covered uh, through the federal costs, and now 90% of new eligibles. What does that mean from Nevada? Pre-Affordable Care Act, we were spending about $500 million annually. Uh, out of Nevada taxpayer dollars to run the Medicaid program and only brought in a million two of federal dollars. Now the Medicaid program is over $4 billion uh, and almost, so the, fe the federal dollars went from 1.2 billion to over 3 billion and the state went from about 500 million to about 750 million. So for $250 million of Nevada taxpayer dollars investment, we brought in over $2 billion of federal money. Anytime you can take uh, $1 and get $8 or $9, it's a good deal. Uh, and that single decision by Governor Sandoval turned Nevada from what we call a donor state to a recipient state. And what I mean by that, the couple million Nevadans that pay federal taxes, when we're a donor state, you pay federal taxes, they add them all up and you make a decision whether those taxes coming back to help your citizens. And Nevada was a donor state. Uh, we paid in a buck and we only got about 70 cents back. In other words, we were helping other states. And now because of the Affordable Care Act and the Medicaid expansion, we are a recipient state. The last number I saw, we were getting a buck 14. So we pay in a dollar and we get a buck 14 back. So now other states are, if you will, quite frankly, uh, supporting Nevada. And, um, and if you read uh, what's called state policy reports from the federal funds information system, you can read the reports and that's almost solely because of the Medicaid expansion is what has driven those dollars into Nevada. You only really get them four ways. Highway funding, Medicaid funding, uh, federal retirees that live in your state, or federal employees that live in your state. And so the big driver has been Medicaid. That's an interesting point you make, that basically other states are sort of subsidizing Nevada at this point. And a lot of governors who opted not to take the Medicaid expansion, now their states are exporting dollars, right, right. to the other states, states. That, that have expanded Medicaid. So in that sense, we're kind of gaining in, a In simple deal. terms, that's right. We're, we're you know, they, they're doing that. And I think, personally, I've been to a lot of NGA meetings, National Governors Association meetings, and different conferences and you know and I think a lot of states are, are sorry that they didn't get in as early some of them have come later to the game um, you know it, it's been a complex issue you remember Nevada I mean I I felt you know I don't know if schizophrenic is the right word but uh, certainly you know when early at HHS you know we fought the Affordable Care Act on grounds that we didn't want it shoved down our throat it was had some unconstitutional provisions in it that we felt so we fought it and we were part of a multi-state effort that won a large Supreme Court case that basically said, you know, the Obama administration couldn't force it down states' throats, that states had the right to be able to evaluate whether it was good for their state or not, and if they felt it was good for their state, then opt in. So we fought it, we won uh, that Supreme Court uh, case, and then we went to work evaluating whether it would be good for the state or not. And as I've said many, many times, Governor Sandoval about grounded the dust, you know. I mean, we have run spreadsheet after spreadsheet after spreadsheet at his request uh, to determine would it be good for Nevada. And uh, we determined it would be, and you probably remember when we all went to Las Vegas and announced that he was going to opt in. 
One other thing that sort of changed from the state's position, at one point Governor Sandoval, I think it might have been in 2013, had entertained the idea of work requirements for Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, that bill I don't think ever reappeared, and and you, you and I have talked about this, that you determined it really wasn't um, going to be worth building up a system, <laughs> you know, to, to try to make sure people on Medicaid were working a certain number of hours. So can you kind of walk us through uh, where we've come on that issue, especially now that we see one state, Arkansas, has implemented work requirements? And, um, you know, the effect is that I think they've at this point taken 16,000 people off the rolls. Uh, can you walk us through that whole process? Yeah. So first, I would want to start with, you know, the Sandoval administration, uh, and I think Nevada in general, would be firstly big supporters of work programs. We want people to work. And then I think you also have to understand that the Trump administration and the states that have opted in on this new work requirement, the work requirement comes from what we call an 1115 waiver. And so you're demonstrating something. So what you're supposed to be demonstrating is that when you get people to work, they get health care through their employer and they improve their health situation. What you don't want to have is a work requirement that is just what I call a uh, a failure to be able to succeed system. In other words, because you don't cooperate in something, a lot of work requirements say you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do 20 hours here, you have to show up to a class, and that's all good. But when you fail for whatever reason, many states, some states, and even Nevada has this had this problem, you terminate their benefits. Now, how have you improved their health? They are unemployed again. They're not on Medicaid. They're not. On, their kids aren't on SGIP you've not improved their health situation. So the ultimate goal is get them to work and either to afford a copay or a premium or a deductible, all the above through the exchange, or you get health care through your employer. So it's not just getting to work, it's about improving their health care. Um, and so we evaluated when the latest opportunity came around, you know, an 1115 waiver to have Medicaid, have people go to work, Remember that Medicaid recipients aren't on one program. Many of them are on TANF, many of them are on SNAP. There's a lot of, if you will, uh, overlap in the programs. And so uh, many, I I can't remember the percentages now, but when we went through it with our staff, uh, you know, uh, food stamps does have a work requirement. So that work requirement not just applies to their food stamp eligibility, but it affects their Medicaid. their TANF recipients are on Medicaid, so they have a work requirement. And then DEDER, Department of Employment, Training and Rehabilitation, is also working with these individuals uh, through their partnership programs. And so there's multiple work programs working with the low-income population. It's not just focused on Medicaid, it's focused on poverty, people below the poverty line who are getting benefits from multiple programs, TANF, SNAP, Medicaid, et cetera. And so we believe we have work programs that uh, are doing what the intent is to get people to work. Um, And what we didn't want to do is have a requirement out there that simply said, we're going to put some requirements out there. You may have a likelihood of failing and therefore you will lose your benefits and your health care coverage. And so I think what's going to be interesting going forward is are those states like Arkansas and some of the others Again, these are 1115 demonstration waivers. You're supposed to demonstrate that you've improved health outcomes. And we didn't believe by just putting a work requirement on Medicaid, a standalone work requirement, that we would see improved health outcomes. Speaking of those health outcomes, um, you know, we know we have a lot more people insured at this point through the Medicaid expansion. Do we know if people are healthier and if, you know, in people's lives have improved? I know, of course, you could probably have a lot of anecdotes on that. But do we know empirically that people's lives have improved as a result of all that? Well, I think the jury's still out. You know, I mean, we're, you know, we're, uh, you know, four years into the Affordable Care Act. We started in, what, January 14, so I guess five years uh, into the Affordable Care Act. And a, a lot of, if you will, healthcare behaviors take time to, to change. I mean, we certainly have a lot of stories that things are better. 
I've not specifically looked at all the measures that uh, exist out there and because they, they come on a, usually about a two-year lag. You know, when you have the national organizations reviewing data, they'll generally come on about a two-year lag. But I think what we do know, a lot of the new eligibles we put on, we made a conscious decision that they would be placed in uh, managed care programs. And so that 200,000, if you will, childless adults that we added on and the moms and kids that have historically been on are all in managed care programs. And so I think the percentage is about 72% of Medicaid uh, recipients are in managed care. And so we're trying through those three managed care organizations that we contract with to ensure that their primary care is being, their primary care needs are being met and that what we call uh, both their physical and their behavioral health are being addressed. That's been our goal is through those managed care organizations to try to address, if you will, whole health rather than the fee-for-service system that you just show up when you're sick and generally show up at an ER. And so we've been trying to implement programs that decrease the ER visits. I know before I had left the governor's office uh, specifically related to Senator Kinsella's program with the kids, we'd seen some decreasing ER visits on those kids. So again, the idea is get them primary care and address problems early and not wait for your mom or your aunt or your grandma or whatever to take you to the ER at probably 10 times the cost of uh, getting on a nurse hotline and taking care of strep throat or or whatever you have early on. And so I, I, I think uh, they are working, but I think the jury's still out to see how much that overall uh, saves. We've had studies in the past, managed care uh, can save four to seven percent. Uh, doesn't sound like very much, but it's a lot of money when you're talking about four billion dollars in health care. Uh, the new governor, Steve Sislak, has brought up a lot of ideas for ways he wants to improve health care in the state going forward. One that I was just thinking of was this uh, revisiting the idea that Democratic Assemblyman Mike Sprinkle had last session to have sort of the broad outline of a Medicare buy-in program. I think we called it Sprinkle Care sort of jokingly, and it sort of took off, and the governor ultimately vetoed it in 2017. Can you talk a little bit about those discussions? I think he vetoed it on the last possible day that he could have, so I'm assuming there was a lot of thought that went into that. He obviously wrote through that entire veto message, and what you would recommend to Assemblyman Sprinkle and, and the new governor um, if they do decide to go down that path and try to pass that legislation again in 2019? Well, I think my recommendation would be, uh, you know, a Medicare buy-in program or uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, Sprinkle Care or whatever, um, I think there's benefit in those and we, we spent a lot of time evaluating uh, that, that model. I think the, the, I think what we're supportive of or what I believe needs to be done is there needs to be, I view it as this, if you have a sliding fee scale of income, you know, people that don't make very much money, they can't, they're spending all their money on food, clothing and shelter and they don't have an ability uh, to buy healthcare. Uh, and, um, and so I think what we want to have is if we like a sliding scale of opportunities for people to be able to get health care. And the work that we did with uh, Assemblyman Sprinkle, uh, it didn't quite get there in the end of what that was going to look like. Um, there's just a lot of details in buying a Medicaid product that look like a Medicaid versus the exchange where you have more of an open market uh, situation. But I think there will be and should be support that as people move up and down the income scale, that there's affordable health care available to them. And you're going to have to have, you know, some people when you get higher pay, you're going to have to put some of your money towards a health care premium, uh, co-pays and deductibles. And people that don't have the ability to that uh, have a less cost for health care or a free health care. So, Devil's always in the detail. I would assume Assemblyman Sprinkle will continue to work on that uh, going forward. And I believe that's probably where America is going to continue to go as uh, a sliding scale, if you will, of access and affordability uh, to healthcare. And certainly as a healthcare advocate over my life, everyone should have access to healthcare, period. Has Steve's <clears throat> Dislax team reached out or worked with you at all uh, beyond preparing for the state budget, but on any 
sort of transition in terms of uh, potential healthcare initiatives they want to work on um, now that he's in office? Uh, I haven't had any of that with uh, the Syslac administration. Our work for the last, I'll just say, month has been budget related, and a lot of that's been kind of late to come. They contracted and hired uh, Mark Stevens. Uh, I don't know if you know that or not. Mark Stevens was a legislative fiscal analyst for a long time and a very smart man. And so I've worked intensely with Mark as a Syslac contractor employee. I don't know what you want to call it, uh, getting the budget together. But there haven't been huge discussions. There have been, I'd say, no discussions on a healthcare, if you will, transition or even an education transition. It's really been about how you get the budget put together. Now, obviously, in getting the budget together, there are dynamics within that budget. You know, you, you know, a budget is about what's the caseload going to look like, what are rates going to look like, uh, what kind of utilization do you assume, what kind of coverage you're going to have. So, you know, Mark and I and the budget team have had many, many frank discussions about what that should look like. And like I said, there's great opportunity going forward, and we've been trying to be a part of that, that, that process. But we've never really, like, sat down and went through and said, going to do this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Governor Sandoval put some markers out in the month of December that if he was finishing the budget, it would include certain things. And um, then at about three weeks ago, we step away. You know, I mean, you can't have the budget office staff working on the Sandoval administration budget. And then the day after inauguration, the budget office has to flip uh, uh, to the Sisolak administration's budget. So we pretty much stepped away about three weeks ago and took a, if you will, a consultation role and said, if we were around, this is what we would do. But you have to make the decision, Governor Sisolak and your team. And and they did, and they have. Mm-hmm. And I would say that budget will, uh, from Mike Wilden's perspective, I think they're on the right path. Governor Sisolak, yesterday, one of the specifics that he put in his speech was about reducing the prescription drug costs. Do you see opportunities there um, that they could work on? Are there, uh, is that the problem you see in healthcare or, or is, from your perspective, the biggest issue we face somewhere else? Um, as you know, over the years, there's been several pieces of legislation uh, to help, if you will, slow the growth of prescription drug costs. Do I think that's the number one issue? No, I do not think that's the number one issue. Um, I think, again, the overall affordability and access to health care, you know, affording to have coverage and having a workforce uh, of providers, and that means across the board, uh, from doctors to nurses to pharmacy to whatever. Uh, so I think it's affordability and access are going to be, again, the top problem going forward. As I listened to the speech yesterday, um, the inaugural speech, uh, I wondered uh, if there was knowledge about many of the opportunities that are available for pharmacy. You know, there are programs out there now that if people reach out, I listened to the situation of an elderly couple pill splitting and things like that. There are a lot of programs out there to help. And so, I mean, my first reaction as a HHS person is, how can I help? I mean, I was thinking, gee, I wish I knew about that couple. I wonder if I could have helped. So. The Medicaid program uh, gets huge drug rebates. Uh, there, there are a lot of ways that we are reducing costs. We negotiate rebate costs. And so, you know, getting on Medicaid or checkup or the exchange will help get access. But there's also Part D coverage. There are state programs helping with uh, pharmacy. So it's an important problem, and rising pharmacy costs are a challenge. But I don't think it's the number one problem. Again, it is the overall affordability of health care. And um, the, um, once you have coverage, do you have a provider or a network that will take you? We hear, you know, delays in seeing a primary care provider. We hear, um, you know, wait lists that come out of a hospital to a skilled nursing facility. Uh, I think that's the bigger challenge than uh, a, a pharmacy focus. Uh, so next week we're recording this, uh, the week before Governor Sisolak's state, state address, uh, where he'll unveil his priorities for the next two year, the, the budget cycle, and we'll get to work for the next 
120 days figuring out how much of that can be passed into law. Um, but I'm curious, Mike, because you've been through this whole song and dance many, many times through many roles, more directly in the most recent session, but we're going to have an $8.8 billion two-year state budget paid for by state tax dollars. But he doesn't start with a blank slate and he gets to decide, all right, this program gets this much, this program gets this much. There's roll-ups for continuing programs um, that will be sort of baked into the budget. Um, how much leeway is he going to have to pursue whatever initiatives the new governor wants to pursue? And how much is going to be, I guess, eaten up by existing programs and whatever roll-ups uh, or caseload growth, whether it's in healthcare programs or other ones that you know just require those, uh, those kinds of spending? I didn't bring a, and don't have in my head the exact amount of money. I mean, you're correct, $8.8 billion, uh, and that doesn't include. There's a pretty healthy ending fund balance, and so, I mean, one of the things that the mathematicians have to walk through is FY18, we had a healthy ending fund balance. We put money in the rainy day fund. The projection for FY19, a very healthy ending fund balance and more money going into the rainy day fund. When you have a healthy ending fund balance, you have an opportunity as an incoming governor for a large one-shot list. And so the budget gets built, one-shots, and then the ongoing budget. So the Sisolak administration, you've heard me use the term, they have great opportunity. They have a, a lot better situation than any one of the two uh, initials, you know, when Governor Sandoval was first elected and then when he was reelected, you know, horrible situation when he was first elected, a better situation when he was second elected. Now going forward, there's great opportunity. Revenue and one-shot capabilities look really good. Uh, you're absolutely correct. I mean, the roll-ups, uh, if you will, really go into three areas. Uh, the Medicaid caseload, and that's caseload and utilization, and uh, so that will lead up some money, and then what we call Medicaid inflation or medical inflation. Uh, the second area uh, is education, and that's really two areas. Uh, the K-12 student enrollment uh, is going to be up 1.2, uh, 1.3 percent. Uh, when you multiply that by six or seven thousand dollars per kid, uh, gets pretty expensive. I didn't bring the dollars and don't have them uh, on my head, but you've seen that handout that we've we've done several times. So a lot of that will lead it up. And then kids are going to college again, which is good news. Enrollment. Uh, you'll see significant enrollment. I think that number's around $22 million a year uh, for, um, for K-12. And then if you deal with pay raises and things like that, you start narrowing that window that that $8.8 million there's not a lot left. And so uh, I would assume uh, that Governor Sisolak will, will be very much like Governor Sandoval. He will focus on education and he will focus on healthcare. You talked about, um, you think the biggest issues are access and, um, and affordability. Is there a, a particular thing, you practical thing you think needs to be done to address that or, or something basically, you know, that you guys weren't able to fully carry out that would help realize that sort of a goal? Well, I think we have to continue to uh, work programs, uh, to, or to develop programs that keep, uh, if you will, our healthcare workforce growing. You get, begin, you know, uh, we, we have several studies that are done. Uh, the Nevada Health Center or Medical Center put out a big study recently. Dr. Packham puts out studies from UNR on our workforce. Um, and uh, we're short in several areas, you know, particularly uh, nursing and particularly primary care physicians, uh, uh, psychiatry, uh, those kinds of things. So we have to develop that workforce. Uh, gradu graduate medical education programs that we've invested into, uh, we're investing $5 million a year. Uh, I think that has to continue and potentially grow. You have to have your workforce developing in in multiple uh, areas and in some of the specialties I think continuing to support uh, both med schools uh, UNR and UNLV's med school you know UNLV's ramping up I think you know whatever they'll be at 240 students or that's got to continue and be supported and uh, we've supported it and I'm pretty sure that Governor Sislak will support that. And then you have to keep those doctors in Nevada, you know, in their residencies. And so it's tied to that graduate medical education component. So when they graduate from med school, they're doing a residency 
uh, here in Nevada or that we're attracting other uh, grad grads uh, to come to Nevada um, and, and do the residency. So I think that work just has to, that has to continue. And there's probably some more work to be done on Medicaid rates. I mean, Medicaid's not the best payer in the world. Uh, and when you have a quarter of your population on uh, the Medicaid rate paying system, uh, when I say that either fee-for-service or managed care, you have to have rates that attract a workforce that will want to see Medicaid patients. So we have to develop those networks. In general, I mean, do you think some people look at the, the growing number of people on Medicaid or, or public assistance as a maybe a bad thing? Um, and do you think we're making progress in helping folks become uh, more self-sufficient, be able to make a better wage uh, rise out of poverty and the difficult circumstances they're in. Have we, over the eight years of the Sandoval administration, made movement on that? Well, I, absolutely, I think we have. I mean, again, I don't have the specific numbers, but our, if you get the numbers from the employment uh, DEETER, uh, Employment Training and Rehab, uh, the average weekly wage has been increasing. I mean, absolutely. Uh, the unemployment rate has dropped. Uh, the number of employers, whether they're large business or small business, employers have grown. Uh, people in jobs, 1.4 million people in jobs. So absolutely, we've uh, grown the economy. We've improved average wage. Uh, absolutely. And we've got more people into health care coverage. But does that mean you can just sit back and say it's done? It's never done. And it has to, it has to continue. Uh, you have to you know, it's doing battle every day uh, is what I look at because, uh, you know, other states are also battling for the same things we're uh, battling for. You know, you bring in a, a Tesla, an Amazon, and one of those big deal things that we announce. Well, you're always in competition with five, six, seven other states, you know, for those kinds of uh, industries and those jobs that come with that. Um, um, you know, some things are uh kind of static and others aren't we're we're a huge national worldwide gaming destination and that that battle's going on all the time we're a large miner and exporter of uh, ores and minerals and that battle goes on all the time uh, so you have to stay on your toes and continue to do that again whether it's jobs or health care or education or whatever and i think if you sit back People will go somewhere else, so it's a constant, uh, a constant fight. Just for a moment, um, I'd like to to address an audience of one. Uh, being your successor as chief of staff is going to be Michelle White, who has a very different career background uh, as you. Uh, you've had 45 years of state government experience, and she comes from more of a campaign background. What were um, some things that you learned during your time as chief of staff to Governor Sandoval that you think would be helpful for her to succeed in that new role and? What are the, the hallmarks of a good chief of staff that you've warned about or, or discovered over the last uh, two or three years? Well, first I want to say, I mean, Michelle's been great to work with in the transition. Uh, I, I'd say we text every day. Uh, we communicate a bunch. You know, she's been trying to pick my brain and learn and get suggestions and things like that. So, um, you know, I, I wish her the best. Um, I guess my advice to her would be, you know, it, it's not about one person. Running, running government isn't about one person. One person leads, that's the governor. And one guy's the chief of staff or one gal's the chief of staff. But it's really about surrounding you with some pretty smart people. Uh, and that's what I've tried to do in my career. I'm not the smartest kid in the block, but I certainly know how to find smart people. And, uh, and then I would say listening to people. I mean, you really have to spend a lot of time, you know, sorting out some pretty complex problems and getting people's opinions and views and then at the end of the day make tough decisions, you know. I mean, you don't get to just kind of wallow uh, forever. At some point in time, you have to make a decision and move forward and, and you know, make corrections along as you go. But, you know, I, 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 I think it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's team. That sounds corny. It's teamwork. Uh, it's, it's, it's very simple that we had a a tight cabinet. We we uh, spent a lot of time in small cabinet meetings. Uh, we did a lot of time liaisoning uh, with the cabinet, and 
Um, I think if you spoke with the Sandoval administration's cabinet, I think they would say that they thought we listened um, and that you know we we cared about what they cared about and and uh, you move forward from there. So I think that's the biggest thing. She's got to get some smart people around her that understand some of the issues and then listen to what they have to say and sort stuff out quickly. You you have to move fairly quickly and and getting that sorted out. So, you know, with my initial reaction, they're trying to build a strong team and, you know, they've got two or three people that I'm proud to say that I've worked with over the years and they'll be helpful to them. Mm-hmm. Mike, what's next for you? That's a really good question. You know, I, I don't I don't know. Um, I really don't know. I, I've got a couple irons in the fire. Uh, I have a couple offers. I don't want to say what they are to jinx them. Uh, <laughs> I'm not retiring. I would say that I'm not. Um, I'm not ready for that. So worked all my life. Uh, worked from the time I'm 13 uh, to now. I've never not been working. I don't really. Know. I'm not very good at looking for work. Like I told somebody the other day, uh, last time I did a application for a job was 1983. <laughs> I've been told I was doing things or appointed or picked or whatever, but I've not applied for a job since 1983. My resume is blank Mm -hmm. from 1983 to now. And so got to update my resume and, but I want to stay involved, uh, in Nevada. Uh, one of my opportunities has been more national. Um, I'm not thinking I'm doing national when I mean national, you know, potential consulting on national basis, healthcare. I'm not thinking that. I, I love Nevada. I'm going to stay close to home and work on Nevada issues, I hope. If not, I'll resort back to my uh, roots and most people's lawns. <laughs> <laughs> and just kind of in closing, because uh, I find it kind of funny, I mean, you work a, a very paper heavy job, you know, <laughs> working in, in a lot of state government stuff, but you're a real outdoors guy. And, and a hunter, I understand, and a, a builder. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into to all this stuff? Well, um, probably, you know, from my dad. Uh, my dad was a, if you would call a jack of all trades, a master of none. You know, he was a hard worker and did everything from floor coverings to fixing uh, appliances to carpentry. And my dad was a big outdoorsman. Uh, we hunted and fished together, in fact. I think every Saturday and Sunday of my life as a child was, you know, when my dad got home from work, you hooked onto the boat and you went to the reservoir or the lake and you fished until Sunday afternoon and we hunted during uh, deer season. So my family is um, outdoor. We camp and hunt and fish and probably not as much as we'd like to, Um, but we, we love the outdoors and we love rural Nevada. Yeah, it's it's kind of the if you will the relief. Again, don't do it enough. Uh, my kids are, my daughters are better hunters than I am. <laughs> uh, quite frankly, uh, they're eagle eyes and good shots, and so I have three daughters that are excellent uh, marksmen. I've probably uh, harvested more animals and better cooks of that stuff than me, and so it's fun to get out with your family and you know slosh around in the mud and snow and rain in rural Nevada and. I have a lot of fun out there. And you were the one that uh, accompanied Governor on his rural tours, and yeah, that's it's a funny statement. It's like everybody always asks me because um, the governor's done 15 trade missions, and everybody thinks you know that I do the 15 trade missions. Never been on a trade mission. <laughs> never been to a foreign country. Never was asked to go. Uh, I'm the stay home and keep the trains running guy. But I think when it came to rural Nevada, uh, you know, Gov was very kind to me, and and we did a lot in rural Nevada together on state parks initiatives. Um, we made a lot of road trips on those and visiting all the state parks, and you know, did the campouts with him and the top of Mount Wheeler with him, and uh, so yeah, Gov and I did a lot of rural Nevada things together, and that's those will always be great memories. But uh, you know, the difference between what I want to do, rural Nevada, Nevada and stuff. What the governor needed to do, and he did do, you know, international trade missions, uh, not my gig. <laughs> All right. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and um, chatting with us about all your 
many years of state service and we wish you the best in your next endeavors and hope you get a little break time to go camping and hunting. I will. Thank you guys. Thank <laughs> you. So been a pleasure working with you over the years. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise for this Ralston free episode, email us at ideas at the And please check out our site if you have not already, the Nevada Independent.com. Please search for us on wherever you get your podcast, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. And remember to rate and subscribe as well. I want to thank Michelle for being here for uh, helping do the podcast with Mike Wilden. And special thanks to our producer, Joey Lovato. I'm Riley Snyder. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Indie Matters. This week's episode was brought to you by the Nevada Mining Association. Thank you for supporting our work.